This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked Will Harding, a product designer at Facebook, what's the biggest challenge he's had with designing since working there? Uh, you know, from the top down, our mission is to make the world more open and connected. Um, and every product or feature that we build is kind of rolling up to that goal, which is a pretty lofty goal in and of itself. Um, so you really need to consider so many people um, when, whenever you're working on any feature. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No other email service provider is better when it comes to functionality as well as customer service. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find the domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 39 patrons for a combined total of $268 a month. Again, a big thanks to all of you that have pledged your support and your appreciation for the show through Patreon. If you like what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes, as well as free Revision Path goodies and access to our patrons-only podcast. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 a month, and it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's go on to this week's interview. I'm talking with graphic designer and art director Jonathan Key. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is John Key, and I'm an art director, graphic designer living here in New York. And I am the co-founder of Codify Art, which is a artist collective based in Brooklyn, New York. And I work as an art director in the TIFF magazine, which is a magazine that focuses on black, queer lifestyle and fashion. Let's talk about Codify Art. How did you sort of get the idea to start that? Cool. So Codify Art started with a group of my friends from Brown University. And it kind of started secretly while we were in college. So I guess my senior year of college, where we were coming together as kind of queer people of color, people of color working in theater, working in arts. And we all kind of, you know, we're always multidisciplinary. So I was a graphic designer, other people were dancers, other people were directors, and we were kind of just assisting each other on projects and realizing that, you know, us supporting each other to get the work done is a huge thing, it's a huge resource, and it's a big part of growing our community. And from that, we did a couple of events in college that focused on kind of POC voices and amplifying that in the arts. And then while we were in New York, when we all moved to New York 
it started a couple of years ago, kind of off the ground. And again, it started with a few theater productions and we got those up. And then we've kind of since then expanded into gallery shows and open mic nights and networking events and all sorts of things. So it's kind of growing a lot. And with Codify Art, I guess it's it's easy to sort of have that collective structure since you all really started it when you were in college and, and you've been able to build it. Have you brought in any more people besides the core group that you started with? Yeah, I mean, when we started in college, it was kind of it like did it was an undernamed Codify Art. It was kind of this like loose idea. And then when we moved to the city and, and you know, people graduate, people move different places. But there were a few people that who were the kind of founding, quote unquote, founding members in college. And then we brought in a few more people who also went to Brown or other or who collaborated with other people that went to other schools in the city and kind of have brought them in who are now like illustrators working in the city, who are directors working in the city, who are producers working in the city. So, yeah, we've definitely kind of grown and expanded and changed teams and kind of are developing as we go. And so now is Codify Art kind of what you do as your I don't want to say full time, but is that kind of the main thing that you're working on? No, I mean, like, it's just one of the things that that I do. And I think that we always joke about it in our collective that this codified art is like everyone's fifth job. But we take mm-hmm. it really, really seriously. And we try to like try to put as much time and energy as we can into it like a full time job. And sometimes, you know, it will just be a meeting for this week. And then other times we'll be producing a couple of events or trying to put on the gallery show or having a string of events week after week after week that we're producing. So it kind of, you know, ranges from time to time or event to event. But yeah, it is something that we do kind of still focus in a lot of our time and energy on them. Well, with some of these events and things that you put on, can you talk about some of what those are? Yeah, totally. So the most recent thing that we just did was Codify Art just had our first gallery, huge gallery show. And we've done a few gallery shows that have been smaller in the past, but it was July 8th is when it opened. And we had our first gallery show and we brought in, we had three events around it. So we had, you know, the opening night event, we had a kind of smaller mixer networking event. And then we had a community talk back where we invited a lot of people from the community. So friends, colleagues, people who live in the neighborhood, people who are curators and gallery owners to come in and ask us questions. And we had a talk back and we had a moderator and really engaging the community with the work. And so much of the work that we do as a collective is all about identity. So the group is made up of people from all over the place, South Korea, from like there are black people in it, there are Latinos in it, there are sort all of these different people who have various different kind of diversity and experience and backgrounds. And we kind of come together to kind of elevate and amplify it. So the focus of this kind of show was about identity. And then also so much of the work kind of intersects with Black Lives Matter and all of this. So it was a great discussion kind of about how art and design and social issues can kind of come together. And you can use spaces that aren't normally kind of populated by people of color to kind of still have these conversations and amplify and share these stories. Well, let's go a little bit more into that, because I know that's really kind of been a big focus, I felt, with design, I'd say maybe within the past few months, particularly as we look at what's going on with current events, not just, you know, this current political race, but also police brutality, other social issues that are going on. Why is it so important for designers and ostensibly for for artists as well to kind of lend their voice to these issues? Well, um, I'm also, like you kind of brought up before, I'm one of the co-founders of Artists Against Police Violence. And this is a website platform organization that 
solely emphasizes on showcasing and kind of amplifying these these types of artwork and these types of kind of social justice focused design. I think that is important because if you look at any kind of civil rights or kind of injustice or social change, one of the main things that are at the forefront of that are the artists, are the people making these visual images, are the people that are translating kind of these painful stories into visual language that people can dissect that really has an impact on the reality of the issues, you know, the reality of the circumstances. And I think that is important as designers and as artists to use the skills that we have to kind of, you know, share our opinions and amplify the other people's stories that aren't necessarily heard or that are often kind of forgotten about. And I think that, for example, with Artists Against Police Violence, we started that probably two or three years ago, right after Ferguson. And it has been such a great platform. And we've met so many people. We've done so many workshops that just like engage artists and engage the community to really think about their own personal voices and their own personal stake and these larger social justice issues. I think oftentimes people don't think that these issues, you know, affect them or impact their lives. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, art and design can really help kind of translate that and cross those borders more so than any other effective medium, I think. When did it kind of first appear to you that you could use your talent that way? Mm-hmm. I guess I could quickly do like a little background, but I started graphic design by being introduced to um, HTML when I was 10 years old. Then my mom brought me home this HTML book. She said, someone from work thought you might be interested in this. And I had no idea what it was. And I had no idea what I was doing with graphic design. But at the time, what I did realize is that I could translate my own personal thoughts into kind of this online presence and like a platform where people can access it and people can view it in a fun, visual way. And I think originally I just started off doing things that were like, for kids, you know, I was 10. So I like wanted to make fun websites that like had games on it or that had like ways that, you know, other kids my age could kind of, like, see cool, like, content. Or, I mean, I guess it was the 90s, too. So that was also very limited. But that's where I started. And I realized, and I think from then, it's kind of been an exploration or kind of a growth and a learning of how I can expand, you know, upon this kind of simple idea of using design to help kind of share pure voice. And then from then, you know, I went to RISD and obviously met and learned a lot from the professors. And I took a lot of classes at Brown and I was heavily involved in theater and just seeing how all of these different types of kind of art forms and makers and thinkers can kind of express themselves very personally, I think was one of the things that also kind of was a catalyst to me continuing to do this type of work. So with your time at RISD, how did that really kind of change and shape you as a designer? Totally. So when I was at RISD, I mean, I think this is kind of a standard fact. I was one of the few Black students there, and I was the only Black student in my graphic design class and then major even for a couple of years at RISD. And I think that when I was experiencing that and learning all the design and learning all the things, it was really great, but I did find that I was missing seeing myself in the lectures or seeing work made by people who look like me in the class or even discussing it. So, so much of my work kind of toward the, actually immediately when I got to RISD, ended up kind of being a reaction to not seeing myself. So I focused a lot of my design efforts and energies and making books or making kind of projects or posters that were always about identity or amplifying other people's voices. Or we have like, you know, we have like assignments that would say, watch this film and my 
you know, and everyone would have to respond to the film. And my always my take was trying to like emphasize type, this kind of marginalized group that was that was always missing or kind of the voices that weren't there. And I think that was a really, really great foundation. And then my senior year, when I was doing my kind of degree project at RISD, I had a really great professor, Jan Baker, who really pushed me to kind of hone in my own voice and really kind of pushed me to continue writing. And I started writing a lot then and kind of documenting my own personal narrative, as well as kind of interviewing other people about their own kind of narratives and where they come from. And that was a huge, I think, catalyst and huge shift and kind of what design could do for me. And since then, I've been building off of this degree project and this work and kind of extending it into gallery shows into New York or other projects that I'm doing in the city or other collaborations that I'm trying to have with other artists. And I think that was kind of a really great thing that came out of being, you know, a marginalized person. I think I was able to really find my voice and kind of push to like share my voice in a way that a lot of my classmates didn't have that kind of pressure. And sometimes my work wasn't necessarily like the most well-received or the most understood at some points, but I think that there was still an appreciation of it. And I think that I like learned a lot having conversations with people. And I think that people probably learned a lot, hopefully, from the things that I was sharing. I was just about to ask you, like, did you get any kind of, you know, pushback or anything from students or from faculty? And the reason that I ask is because I've had, you know, designers on the show before that have kind of had that same kind of experience. They went into their degree program. They were the only person of color and they sort of had to sort of fight their way through, not just in terms of not seeing themselves reflected in the curriculum, but also that their own unique expression as a black designer was kind of being thwarted by faculty because it didn't fit into whatever, I don't know, the the European design standard looks like. Yeah, I can definitely see that being the case in some cases. And I think that like crit wise, a lot of the work that I was doing was like, I just feel like my graphic design in general is a little bit more toward the artistic kind of bit versus kind of like you said, like this kind of Swiss kind of graphic design. And I think that was a really interesting challenge. And I think that I had some teachers that really allowed me to explore that and express that. And other teachers, you know, they were kind of still kind of pushing, you know, the foundational uh, requirements and making sure that I, they thought that I understood, you know, the basics or understood other things. And like, you know, there is like a learning that has to happen, but I think there is a self-expression that I was also able to do. And a lot of times, and also while I was in college, I was doing like a lot of kind of, you know, ex- like freelance projects on the side. So if I wasn't able to, you know, necessarily fulfill everything that I wanted to do in my actual design courses, and I also had an outlet, you know, doing theater posters or doing other types of design jobs that really allowed me to kind of explore without any kind of, you know, curriculum or advisor or teacher kind of micromanaging that. It was definitely both worlds. I mean, sometimes during crits, you know, I would present work and none of the students would ever say anything, you know, nothing would be completely silent. And it was just like a (laughs) conversation with me and the professor, you know, talking about my work and why we thought it was interesting or what she thought was really successful or what she thought I could like push about. And so those things definitely happened more often than I would want to admit. But I think that you know, you just learn and you grow from those, those types of experiences. And I think, you know, even though I obviously would have loved more kind of open conversation and support from like more students or faculty, I f- do feel like, you know, 
I like gain a lot of strength and kind of courage to even have these kind of conversations. I really do owe that to so many of the professors at RISD. And I think, you know, it's the kind of the reality of like, you have to make this work. And I always think about Nina Simone, the Nina Simone documentary that Netflix did. And there's a line that she says that, you know, that she has to perform these types of songs. She has to sing it. It's in her soul. She can't do anything else. And that's kind of how I feel about, you know, design and using graphic design to elevate voices and amplify voices like, or to show my personal expression. Like, I have to do this. This is what I have to do. I can't do anything else. So I think there are, like, other examples that kind of exist outside of the design circle or even the educational circle that I think I look to as inspiration or, like, for courage. Like Nina Simone, I think, is a really good example. Where do you see Codify Art going in the future? Cool. So, yeah, Codify Art is really growing pretty rapidly. And we are kind of scaling our events so much. Like each, each event is just growing more and more. And so our huge thing is that we're trying to do in December is host a QT Puck zine and art books fair. And so we're currently working on the logistics and all of that right now and making connection with vendors. But that's like kind of, you know, the next step of kind of having a space to amplify these people and to showcase this work in a real, real, real way. So it's not just like us and a few of our friends. We can start reaching out to, you know, 10 or 20 other groups to kind of connect them or bring them into the same space. And I think ideally, I mean, for me, Codify Art, I would love for Codify Art to have you know, a center or a theater space or a gallery space, someplace that we can continue to own and hone in this type of, the type of work that we're doing. And I think that we're, we're working on nonprofit status. We're working on all of these things to kind of help us get more grants and get things so we can start doing larger projects. And I think, you know, we're expanding to publications and really trying to push that. And we're expanding to more theater and music. So there are so many different facets that we're currently working on that are happening, and it's really exciting. We're, having, we're getting such good feedback and attendance. It's, it's like phenomenal. I can't believe how much we've grown. Let's kind of bring it back more to you here. I'm really kind of interested with, with everything that you said here. What is a typical day like for you? Like what's, cool. what's your standard day like? <laughs> so I was hoping that you would ask that question. So yeah, I mean, you know, it depends on day to day. So I'm a freelancer. And so sometimes it's according if I have a ton of, you know, freelance projects. But normally I wake up in the morning, I do yoga or I work out first thing when I get up. So I try to be done with yoga by like 9.30 and then I try to run or something and be done with that process. And I send emails and kind of get my day together around 10. And then from 12 until 6, I am kind of cranking out on over the work is that day. So I've been working on... Like packaging rebrand, I've been working on. I'm working on the Tenth Magazine and their new issue that's coming out in October. I've been working on Slade TV, which is a. I'm the chief creative officer for that, so doing a lot of the strategy and the branding and the identity work for that, and making sure that brand tone of voice and the philosophy and everything is being carried out in the design work. So it kind of depends on day to day, but I always try to like start the day off like more chill, more emphasizing, just kind of like my body or like my health or kind of like mental health and then leaving time to kind of, you know, obviously work as much as possible. So I, and I try to end my work day around six, you know, five, six. And then some days if I have a really, you know, extensive project, it will go until 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. And then I'll wake up at 8 a.m. and do it all over again. So it's kind of this vicious cycle, but I work from home and it's really great to kind of be in control of my space. I've been doing 
full-time freelance since January of this year. So I've been doing now for eight months now, eight, eight months, almost nine months. And so it's been really exciting kind of creating my own schedule and cultivating my own client list. And it's been really great. I can't, I can't even, it's just so blessed. <laughs> <laughs> what have you learned about yourself since you started out on your own like this? Mm. I guess one of the things that I've learned is that I was a really super organized, clean like person. And I knew this about myself, but it's been really nice, like kind of being 100% in control of your schedule. And there's something really nice about kind of being able to decide, you know, what you're going to do. And I like that. I like having ownership over, you know, all the details and every second of my life. And I also learned, I mean, I guess kind of more specific skill things that kind of relate to graphic design. I mean, one of the things that I've been doing a lot is a lot of kind of creative directing or more like managing projects. And I work with like one of the designers that I work with is my partner, Wael Marcos. And we've been working together on a ton of projects and kind of learning how to communicate broader ideas of things and kind of translating that to another person. It's been a skill that I've been able to hone in on. And kind of also, we do a lot of strategy with the design that we kind of present to clients. And again, that's always something that can be refined. You learn things every single time you do a project. So those types of things, I think, are also things that I've been learning so much about. And I think, obviously, the technical things of design. I mean, I've learned so much in the past nine months, and I've had, you know, so over the past three years that I've been in New York, just because I'm able to kind of explore so many different types of design, like a lot more hand lettering I'm, I'm doing now and a lot more packaging design, a lot more, you know, these types of things that sometimes like a branding agency or advertising agency, you don't necessarily get the chance to, you know, explore as a designer. So it's been really nice. I've kind of opened up the field of design work that I'm even able to do. So it's, that's also been nice. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really great that you've also got the projects that support you being able to do that. I know some freelancers, when they sort of break out, they stay in just one lane in terms of the things that they do. So you're doing, you know, some graphic design, some art directing, some creative direction, some packaging design, some lettering. Like it's a, a good mix of skills that's going on. Yeah, and every time I do a new project now, it's like a new problem, a new challenge, and then I can... Have, I actually have the time to like learn and perfect the skills that I need to pull off a project. So there is so much that I'm experiencing. And then being able to talk to other people because I actually have time now in my life to like meet up with other designers or talk with other <laughs> artists and like see their work and go to more gallery events and be inspired by other people. Like, you know, it's kind of like a more kind of, for me, it's like a more kind of fulfilling kind of artistic life. It's not just me kind of working in a vacuum. I really am still learning from other people, even though oftentimes I am just sitting in my house by myself. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's great. Well, speaking of that, who are some other kind of artists or designers out there that you admire? Oh, wow. Okay. These are actually my friends from RISD. They're grad students from RISD, but they have opened a studio called Isometric Studio and Andy Chan and Vakas, and they are really amazing graphic designers, and Vikas is actually an architect. So I love just seeing their design work kind of grow and like how they like, you know, pull together these two different types of design thinking into design work, I think is really inspiring. Then obviously for like painters, graphic designers in general, one of the things that I've been looking at while I kind of pull her name up is I've been looking at a ton of black graphic designers. 
as kind of resources or connections. And I love the work of Martine Sims, who's a graphic designer, programmer, and kind of essayist and artist. And I love all of the work that she's doing. And then people like James Harris, who just graduated from Yale, who's a really great graphic designer, and Bobby Martin. I think that these are all like amazing designers working right now. And I love what they're doing and kind of what the kind of work that they're doing. And then kind of for fine art, Najadika Crosby. I I'm kind of mess I'm butchering her name. She's going to be mad. But she's an amazing artist. And I love, she uses a lot of transfers, like photo transfers in her work and acrylic painting in her work. So to me, I love kind of like this fine art that is kind of matched with kind of like this digital reproduction that she uses in her paintings. And I think, like, I just saw one of her paintings in the Whitney for the first time in person and I was kind of blown away by the scale, by the level of detail of her work, and it's very inspirational. And also Carrie James Marshall is another Black painter who does a lot of portraits of Black people. He uses kind of a really dark Black paint in his work to kind of depict Black skin. So it kind of takes out the colorism and it's post-Black kind of aesthetic. And it's really like a really beautiful, I just love his work. And I think that is very inspirational for my own design practice and my own kind of personal fine art practice. So with Codify Art, one of the main things you mentioned was really the diversity of the group. And in the design community, I mean, I feel like the conversation around diversity has ebbed and flowed. It's something that has really been going on for the past, I'd say almost 20, maybe 30 years, but it doesn't feel like it's ever gotten the level of visibility or certainly the level of conversation as maybe, say, the diversity in tech conversation. Totally. So as a black gay man in the design industry, what has your experience been like? Totally. I mean, when I was working in advertising, I've had really great experiences throughout. And I think they're always matched by like some subtle moments of kind of uncomfortability or kind of real conversations or people not knowing how to navigate certain things. Like I was working on a project once at the agency that I was at, and it was kind of, and I was like pulling images, you know, like as an art director, just pulling images to show to the executive creative director to be like, well, this is a mood and feel. And one of the things that she picked up, or like one of the things she commented on, or she asked was like, is this a diversity back? Like, is this a diversity advertising ad? Or like, is this a diversity kind of initiative? Because a lot of people that I was pulling for the images were people of color and kind of over the whole broad spectrum. And that was kind of a really interesting little, like, weird tidbit that kind of came up where you have to, like, where, you know, she, like, addressed the fact that she didn't want, you know, it to be that diverse, really. <laughs> and okay. that was kind of a weird thing. And we kind of just had a conversation about, like, what she was actually looking for or why she felt that way or what the actual goal was. And, like, you know, there to me, these are just really beautiful people that are, like, exactly what we're looking for. And I think, you know, things like that have happened. But I think also working in an agency, a big agency, you kind of have the luxury of it being, you know, more diverse. And the places that I was working, they kind of emphasized diversity more or less there. And I kind of was surrounded by, you know, other Black queer designers or people who worked in the agency or other Black or people of color, art directors or designers. So it, I definitely felt taking like, you know, definitely felt like there was a community there. And I don't think that everyone has experiences in working for agencies, but I definitely kind of sensed that, that I was kind of special, like it was like a special situation. And I very much appreciated that. So I think it was kind of a balance of, you know, the company's kind of culture, 
which was great. But then there also are these like personal things that you have to kind of iron out as you present or do a project. And I guess like other places, I mean, it's always being like the other place I worked for a really small startup as a brand designer. And that place was, you know, it was only two women who worked there. And there was, I was the only black person, the only black queer person who worked there. And there was like one other black person that worked there. And it was all kind of white, straight men. And that's always just kind of like interesting dynamic when you go into a space and you realize that like you are now the severe minority, particularly mm-hmm. in a company that's smaller than 30 people. And conflicts and things didn't arise, you know, that were anything crazy, but you do just have to figure out how to navigate the space. And I feel like there is, like there's always kind of that kind of work to do to feel like, you know, that you feel safe at work or you feel like you're like including the conversations at work or you feel like, yeah, I mean, I guess it varies. I've honestly had pretty good experiences and I haven't had anything really crazy happen to me. Besides for the fact that I think that, I mean, I always want more people of color in the office space and almost always more diversity and always more queer and trans people. But I think, you know, some people are working at it and others can still do a much better job. And I mean, some of the projects that you're doing now, I mean, decidedly, that's the community that's going for, like you mentioned, the Tentazine. Right. You mentioned Slay TV. Can you talk about those projects and why it's important for you to kind of lend your talent to that? Absolutely. When I, the 10th magazine has, this is the fourth issue of the 10th magazine, and this is the third issue that I worked on. It was started by this guy, the creative director is Kari Sepp, and he's a kind of creative director, art director who was living in New York, and he started the magazine. And I saw the first issue and it came out, and I was like, this is amazing. This is everything that I have been wanting and needing to see in these kind of like artsy kind of fashion magazines. It's just more people that look like me. And then when I saw like the design work and I thought it was really nice, I was like, I can totally email them and help them out and hopefully they can respond back. And they did. And they like, we met up in person. He really loved my work. And since then I've been working with them, kind of started off as doing a few spreads here and there, a few smaller things, and now kind of more doing larger art direction for, for the design of the magazine and kind of owning more of what the look and feel of it is. And it's been a really awesome experience. And I definitely, you know, I like when you have something that is as specific as, you know, a black queer magazine that is kind of looking at what the national landscape of black queerness is in from, from art, from music, from fashion. It was just like kind of a perfect magazine that I wanted to be a part of. And I've been working on it. And then now I guess three, three years or three issues later, and it's been amazing. And I'm learning so much and meeting so many great photographers and artists and other designers. And for me, it's just been a way that I can really tap into more people in my community that's doing the work that I'm doing. You know, I hadn't really even met any other Black graphic designers, you know, like until very late into RISD. And in New York, you know, you can go to design events or whatever and see, and you still don't see that many people that look like you. So it was really nice kind of reaching out with these guys and kind of being connected to a community of creative black queer people. And so that's why it was really important to me for me to be a part of that and, and, and just helping use my design skills to make it bigger and make it better and, and help it grow. You know, that is I can't ask for anything better, you know, to spend my time doing. And the same for Slay TV. Slay TV started off as a smaller app called Architect and has then since kind of grown in size. I think 
over one month, it went from 1,500 people to 15,000 users. And because people wow. want access to these queer communities, people want to have this uh, connection to it. Like we always think about like, you know, in New York, everyone's always around, there's always so much to do, but what about the person in middle America? What about the person from small town Alabama who doesn't have access to queer content or queer people that look like them or a queer culture at all? You know, and they're just being stifled and they have no way to like expressing this part of themselves. And I think something like Slay TV, that is a digital queer content platform that will have music videos, that will have, you know, original web series content, that will have artists and interviews and all of this stuff that will kind of, you know, in one place for people to have access to. I think it's going to be really important and amazing, you know, to again expand and amplify these voices and these creative peoples and share it with people who wouldn't normally have access to it. I think that is another reason why I do both of these projects. And that's why Slay TV is another kind of online example of, of work that needs to be done. And people want this type of thing. People need this. It's important. So it's been really inspiring and amazing for me to be a part of these things and to help other people that look like me have access to community that they maybe normally wouldn't. Christopher Barker, who, my God, I talked to him maybe... I don't know, months, not to say months, years ago. This was like 100 plus episodes ago when I talked with Christopher Barker. But he's a, a, a black gay designer here in Atlanta, um, does a lot of magazines, magazine covers, stuff like that. Um, and now he has an app out that's called Factor. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, I haven't. I think it's, it's Factor Mag, M-A-G. But basically, it's I guess it's similar to what you're saying with Slate TV. Um, but it's more so just like a, it's a magazine app, cool. essentially. It's a black gay magazine and you can find it on Google Play, you can find it on the App Store, etc. But I remember when we did our interview, he mentioned that it was just really important, you know, sort of like you said, to be able to see himself in the work that he's doing and not just that, but to be able to show that representation for other people that don't live in these metropolitan areas, you know? Absolutely. And and not only that, just to be the one that's telling your own story, because I know that, you know, some criticism certainly that's been heard, and not just from the LGBT community, but just kind of in general, is that you don't want other people kind of trying to tell your story because they're translating. They're not exactly getting it right in a way, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. And you, and you want it to be as authentic as possible, right? When you're doing any types of things where you're amplifying or highlighting, you know, more marginalized voices. And I think that an, another kind of great point that you brought up is that I also wanted to do the work that was for my voice. You know, like as a graphic designer, so much, it's a service industry. You know, we do, we take on clients for all different types of things. They can range all over the spectrum, but it's really nice being able to take on projects and use my skills that are specifically for my community or very specifically for me even. You know, I can use these products. I can use these apps. I can digest this content. And that's also nice. And I think that's one of the kind of another reason why I continue to push to try to do this type of work because it's important and, you know, it's incredibly special, you know, to design for something that is, you know, that personal to your own experiences and the way that you navigate the world as well. How would you describe your own kind of personal design style? Definitely. Like I said earlier, I think that my design style kind of tends to be a little bit more artistic, quote unquote. I love using kind of collage or painting or, you know, mixed media and posters that I do or in the design system that I do. And for example, for a logo that I'm um, doing for a for an opera company, 
you know, it's hand lettering. The logo is hand painted lettering. And it's just really nice to kind of incorporate digital kind of computer skills, but also incorporating this hands on kind of way of working as well. And I, that's one of the things I also always emphasize or try to emphasize when I'm doing a project. And I think that pushing, you know, the writing aspect of the projects or, the, or that can sometimes exist as strategy for projects is really important. So it's kind of this back and forth of, you know, hands making plus writing plus the computer is like how I like to work. Yeah. And, and obviously I emphasize queer um, design. I don't want to do work for queer design organizations or queer organizations or black organizations or arts and cultural organizations and work that really kind of amplifies or that I can use my design skills to help people that look like me show themselves to the world. And I think that's one of the best things that we can do as a designer. And, you know, and make it look good too, you know, and that's another thing. Like I want it to look mm-hmm. good. I want... You know, I want the work that we have as a community to look amazing, to be, you know, award-winning design or to be respected as well. And I think that that is, like, not as important, but it still is, like, a level of, like, I still want it to look amazing. You know, it can look amazing. It deserves to look amazing. But, yeah, so I guess, like, I mean, if that answers your question, but, yeah. No, it's important. that I mean, you know, it's it's visual design. That's what we, we dissect it with first is our eyes. So it is important that it looks good. Right. What is kind of the best advice that you've been given with, with what you do? I mean, you you sort of talked about your journey from small town Alabama, which we'll get to in a minute, but from there all the way up to where you are now working in New York City, what's the best advice that you've gotten? I mean, one of the things, I, I always look back to my parents, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur, like he owns a construction company in Alabama, and then my mom definitely helped support his business. And she's just kind of a strong black woman. And having these like two amazing strong figures that definitely pushed me growing up to never take no as an answer, to always continue pushing myself to, you know, my mom always said that sometimes you have to break the rules to like get what you need out of it, you know, like to get what you actually want to happen, you know, not trying to break the law, but, you know, like you have to like think outside of the box and like never let anyone tell you that you can't do something or you're not good enough. And I think that, you know, those types of that type of like upbringing was really helpful for me to even have, you know, the courage to talk about all of these things or to have, I don't know, the strength to do it. Like, I really owe that a lot to my parents. And I think that they really pushed Jared because I'm a twin, Jared and I, to, you know, just never let anyone tell you, you can't do something. <laughs> so like I said before, I was going to mention small towns. So you and I have that in common. We're both from small towns in Alabama that began with the letter S. You're from Seal, which is right outside Phoenix City, which is kind of on the border of Alabama and Georgia near Columbus, Fort Benning, all that. Right. I'm from Selma. Oh, okay, cool. Which, of course, people know about from that damn movie, but that's a a whole (laughs) other thing. But but people know about Selma. So to the folks that are listening, tell me what it was like for you kind of growing up in a small southern town. Like, what was that, that experience like for you? Of course, also kind of taking into account your kind of artistic talent and everything like that. What was it like? Totally. So yeah, I grew up in rural Seal, Alabama. Like we grew up in the country, lots of land around us, you know, like in our backyard were cows and between the field, our grand, like behind the field is where our grandparents lived and they had like chickens and pigs and all of that. So it's like very, very Southern country, small town. 
I don't even like we have a post office, you know, down the street. So that's like that's it. <laughs> and so I mean, I think, and then I went to um, when I was there, I went to a really small Catholic, all black private school. Like in it was called Mother Mary School. It's no longer around. But yeah, it was a small school. It's where my mom and all of her sisters and brothers went to school. So I had been around for forever. And I think that that was a really great place because it had such like a family connection like to yeah. it that I think that I was able to like have people who really were supporting me and looking out for, you know, Jared and I, why we were in school and really, you know, pushing us and never letting us like slack up at all, like zero, zero tolerance. Cause all the teachers are basically like kind of faux family because they knew my parents. So like my mom and my parents so well, which is yeah, you know, yeah. kind of crazy. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I really didn't even start art until my like sophomore year of high school. And I was, you know, always drawing and things, but I, I did music and theater up until that. And I guess kind of growing up, that was my introduction to the arts was always through like singing in the church choir or like doing pageants at school or like doing kind of like summer theater camps or whatever. I mean, learning the recorder in second grade, like every kid across America. <laughs> and, you know, and those types of things, I think, were kind of huge. You know, those are things like arts programs are huge. And I think when I got into high school, which was a completely different experience, I went to an all-white high school that was on full scholarship to go to. It was like a very different experience. And I, like again, like had to figure out how to navigate this space. Like my mom did a really good job you know, of us growing up, of like talking to us about race when we were very young, because obviously we're black kids in Alabama, you know, it's like one of the worst places that you can be kind of a black man, you know, some people say, and, you know, growing up, just being really aware of kind of like the behaviors, your actions and how people would treat you and like making sure you understood, you know, my mom did a really good job of that. So when we went into high school where it was a completely different kind of space, we were prepared for it because my mom had had many conversations with us and we had been talking about race and we had been talking about, you know, our identities. And then when we got into high school, it was like things were fine. There definitely were some crazy kind of things that happened in high school, you know, with like parents and like not being able to take their daughter to prom and like all of these types of things. And like yeah. those things definitely still did happen. And I graduated high school in 2009. So those things definitely existed. But I think like artistically, I did definitely have a really strong kind of, again, network or faculty, people who were supporting me. And like, I didn't even know anything about like RISD or graphic design until, you know, my sophomore year, my friend was showing me like, oh, like this is, I'm thinking about going to SCAD. And she showed me the kind of prospective books and I was flipping through it. And I saw the graphic designs page and it had, you know, websites and it had posters and it had like graphics and it had all these things that, you know, I had been doing kind of by myself up until that moment. And then I realized that, oh my God, I can get paid to do this. I can go to school for this. Like, <laughs> this is a thing that other people do. Like, this yeah. is a profession. And then I kind of like worked my ass off to kind of figure out if art school or if design was something that I was interested in. And also telling your parents that you're going to go from a small town in Alabama to go to Rhode Island. You want to go to Providence, Rhode Island, the smallest state of North for art school was a hard sell. And, you know... Like, it took, like, you know, lots of kind of convincing or, like, kind of showing them, like, hey, I did this thing, and, like, this is cool, or I did this thing, and I'm a part of this program, and I did the Rizzi pre-college before there and got a full ride to go there. And there were, like, these, like, tiny small steps that I had yeah. to do to kind of prove to my family and my parents and everyone that, like, I can do this. Like, this is actually a legit 
thing. Like no one knows what Rizzi is in Alabama. No one knows what like a graphic designer <laughs> does. And I know, like, I mean, not to say that no one knows what Rizzi is in Alabama. Where I grew up, though, like, no one was. No, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> but yeah, no one knew anything about that. And so, like, you know, one, I, the funniest thing was like one of my family members. I was like, oh, I'm going to Rizzi for school, like, to study art and graphic design. There was like are you going to graduate with a degree? Like, is that a four-year school? And I think that those are the other things that you kind of have to deal with, like coming from a small town in Alabama. It's like, you know, most people wanted us to go to like Emory or go to like, you know, Morehouse or some like the college like that, really nice Southern, great school. Close by Close too. by too. But I knew since the fourth grade that I wanted to go to New York. I was like, I'm going to move to New York and do something. And I didn't know what it was in the fourth grade. I didn't know why I wanted to go to New York. I just knew that I wanted completely different change or uh, and pace of life and that was new york right and here i am living in new york <laughs> at 20 dreams come dreams true, come true. <laughs> so is that kind of why you ended up choosing rizzi over scads because of the distance because it would get you closer to new york yeah i mean yeah i really did not want to go to school in the south <laughs> and i did a summer like i did like a one-week summer program at scad like for a week when I was a sophomore and that was kind of my introduction to what like art school life was or what design school that was the t- first time I took a graphic design class you know yeah and that was I loved it I think Savannah is really beautiful but then I really did not want to go to school in the south <laughs> and then when I went to RISD for pre-college like I fell in love with Providence and I like loved RISD and so it kind of worked out and my brother my twin actually ended up going to Brown University which is oh, wow. like right next door to RISD. And that totally happened by accident, but it was another, it was kind of a nice like deal that ended up happening, kind of working out kind of off of luck. So in Providence ended up definitely being the best place. And he's a designer too. He is a theater director and visual artist. So okay. yeah, so he went to Brown, he's majored in theater and public policy and now works at the public theater as a producing assistant there and he is also a visual artist and he's been doing paintings and kind of merging what is dance theater and visual art and kind of translating that into what he calls like hair paintings and he paints with his hair in these huge kind of walls or canvases oh i've seen that yeah crazy i've seen that (laughs) that's my brother he did that oh wow yeah that's pretty interesting. Like you got, you know, your mom, your parents have two artists in the family. Yeah. That's that's dope. Yeah, they have two queer artists. Yeah, so yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, my mom growing up would have sketchbooks laying around the house that she like kind of did when she was younger, you know. And like seeing those sketchbooks were also like always really nice kind of seeing like, oh, my mom can really draw. And then my dad was like a carpenter, like he was a construction worker, like he like built houses, you know, he owned a company. And so that's also kind of like, that's obviously design. That's obviously like a visual job. Um, yeah, yeah. And so it, like we kind of did slightly have two parents that did design or art, you know, in, in their own ways. That was also like kind of fun and interesting and kind of as we reflect on growing up now, like, of course, your kids are both going to be artists and designers. Like, look at yeah. the environment that we were kind of brought up in. Well, this might be an odd question, but if you didn't go into design, what do you think you'd be working on? Totally. The other thing I would probably be doing is psychology. That was, like, <laughs> one 
of the things I was thinking about when I was like, you know, in high school applying to schools before I like, you know, decided that I was going to be a graphic designer. Because I just love this idea of like talking with people and talking about, you know, how our minds work or what kind of motivates us to do the things that we're doing or helping people kind of get through solve problems. And I think that's kind of just another way that you can help someone solve problems is through kind of like mental health or mental diagnosis or even just talking with someone. So I think that is very interesting. And I think so much of my design practice, like your design projects that I do, requires me to interview people and like let them talk to me about things that are extremely personal or that are really kind of about like things they normally don't talk about. And, and I think mm-hmm. you kind of feel like a therapist, but so it's kind of funny that like it's kind of abridged in that way. But yeah, totally. I'm thinking, you know, back to when you were talking about kind of what it was like growing up and, and discovering design and things like that. I just remember when when I was in high school, which was <laughs> a long time ago. You say you graduated in 2009, right? I graduated high school in 2009. I'm 25 now. 2009. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm 35. I graduated in 1999. Nice. And so when when I think about, I mean, when you think about what the web was like in the mid '90s, the internet was terrible. Right. It was Netscape. <laughs> exactly. It was it was not to what it was, you know, in 2005. And so even when I think about how fast the industry has grown in those 10 years, and I think about just how much more access you might have had to, you know, websites and and tutorials, and you know, even knowing about schools and things like that. When I was in high school, I knew about SCAD. I knew about I don't know what else I knew about. I don't know if I knew about any other really like kind of art and design schools. I wanted to go to school to write. I wanted to be an English major. Oh, my nice. mom was like, that's, my mom's like, that's not gonna make any money. <laughs> like you need to like you need to 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 work on something that's gonna actually cause this is like post a different world, right? right. So I my mom's like, you, you know, should look at like engineering or something like that. Like Dwayne Wayne, you like computers, you know, that right, sort of exactly. stuff. And and eventually, I mean, I did go into computer engineering, and then I switched to math. And I mean, I still write and do stuff now, and I design. So I feel like I do something completely different from what I started in high school. But I mean, it's kind of just a testament to how this industry keeps building and growing and changing. You know, even now, like there might be someone who's graduating high school in, say, 2019. And you think about the amount of choices that they have, Absolutely. as opposed to where, you know, what you were doing in 2009, you know, it's... It's just really great how things are growing and changing and, and um, I think becoming a lot more accepting as well. Absolutely. And I mean, I like thank my high school art teacher a lot for introducing me to RISD. You know, like she was the person that was like, oh, you should really think about doing a program at RISD or you really should be thinking about these things. And like having kind of because so, she's an artist, you know, she was actually like a, a practicing artist. And so it was like kind of nice having someone who who was informing you about these things, because like you said, like resources now are not even close to what they like you know what they were in the past like there are a million things that you can that are available at your fingertips that we definitely yeah. uh, you definitely didn't have access to you know like so i definitely think you know in 2019 god knows it's gonna happen we had like photoshop 5.0 <laughs> right <laughs> in high school and i remember using like adobe page make exactly. i remember the big deal because i think it went from like 5.0 to 5.5 or something and that was a huge deal like I mean, just thinking of the tools, but also the the access to things, because aside from SCAD and maybe a few other places, I didn't even know about any sort of art and design schools. And we had some access to the web. I mean, we had a, a library in the computer Absolutely. and we could look at scholarships on fast web, you know, yes. stuff like that. But but other than that, I didn't I mean, I had an idea, but not I think it was 
kind of more a thing of convincing my family that this was something that I could do that would make money. So when you mentioned that, you kind of had to let your parents know this is something that you can actually make a living from. I think that's something that is probably current or common, I should say, to a lot of households, like a lot of students that want to do that, unless your parents really are accepting and know what you can do in the industry. Exactly. Absolutely. And um, I, it's a tough sell. Absolutely. And I think specifically for black people, too, you know, like that's why I think that revision path is such a great platform. You know, like you're actually putting online and these are successful black people doing it. And like you need representation for other people to feel like they can also do it. You know, it's like I loved like that picture when the black guy that was a Star Wars trooper came out and then you had all the little black kids who were dressing up like that yeah. as Halloween and that like simple representation makes a huge difference, you know, and like having kind of access points to say, hey, parents, this is a famous black graphic designer who's killing it is huge. You know, that's such a big deal to have to kind of allow people to even think about this as an option. Yeah, it it matters. I mean, and it's not even just because I think it was important for me when I was doing Revision Path, especially when I transitioned from doing written interviews to audio. Mm -hmm. And so that people could get that kind of extra dimension of who the person is. They could hear their voice. They could know that this is an actual person and it's not just kind of like words on a page sort of thing. Because anybody could probably write that. But you're actually hearing from these people. And I try to get a good mix of, you know, young, old students, working professionals, straight, gay, lesbian, bi, you know, trans in the U.S., outside of the U.S. I try to get a good mix so people can see that even in what might look like a monolithic group, you know, black designers, there's a lot of variety in there. And there's a lot of different things that you can do. And there might be someone that is doing what you want to do. Or it could be something that you even just discover that you want to do from listening to something on the show. I had Amelie Lamont, which was mm-hmm. I think she was episode like 147 or 148. Eight, I believe, something like that. But she told me that she was interested in design anthropology because she heard about it on the show. Yes, she was like, "You interviewed Dr. Dory Tunstall last year," and I was like, "Oh, design anthropology. That sounds like something I could get into." And so that's kind of what she's studying now. So it's, I'm glad that you said that because I do feel that it is important. Ideally, I'd like to try to get revision path into schools because you mentioned when you were at RISD that kind of one of the the difficulties is not seeing yourself reflected in the curriculum. Right. And I don't know how much design curriculum is changing around that sort of representation, but if there's a way that I could, I mean, I'm, I'm working on it. So people that listen, I'm working on it. There's a way you can help me out. Let me know. But I'm working on trying to see what I can do to get the show into design schools or maybe into high schools or something so they can listen and know like, Hey, these are people of color that are, are doing this, that you can be that person too. Absolutely, and I think that you did one of the a lecture series that was like, where are all the black graphic designers? And there was like a slideshow, and it had all of these like different articles that were in it that kind of were from the 90s that people were writing about diversity in design. Yeah. And, like, and I just learned so much from that presentation. And I think like even something, you know, like, I don't know, like, you know, sharing it on like school slip service, like things like that, like these are amazing things that, that you were creating that other people also sharing that, you know, can also, as simple as just as watching it was so informative for me. So yeah, great. I totally agree. And I think that you're killing it. I'm like so excited. I'm excited to be a part of this. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't want to make this about me. I mean, this is, this is your episode, but no, I mean, you mentioned your parents, you mentioned your, your art teacher, you mentioned 
think you said her name was Pat Baker at RISD? Jan Baker. Jan Baker, that's right. Who are some other mentors that you've had that have helped you out in your, your career? Totally. And mentors is really interesting. I have, so I'm like always like, do I have mentors? And I, <laughs> and it's something that I'm like actively actually working at right now. And I've been doing that basically since I've been freelance life. And I think that obviously places that I've worked, like at the, the agency that I worked at, I met amazing kind of queer people of color. That was like the guy who was the design director of the agency that I was at, his name is Hunlin. He was an amazing guy to have when I was first being introduced into kind of design world and the agency life. And I think I've been, and like there are also other people that I've worked with, like Michael Collins, who's an amazing writer who I learned how to present from just by watching him present and having conversations with him about, you know, how to pitch something to a client, just seeing him do it. And those things I think are huge learning experiences. And there are people that I've been trying to, that I've been connecting with now, like Maurice Woods, um, and he is in charge of Interact Project. Interact Project. Yeah, he's he's been on the show, episode thirteen. Exactly, and I I've been emailing with him a little bit, and like also you just talked with the creative director, the former creative director of the White House, and I've been trying to contact with her, and we've been talking back and forth, and so like I've been really trying to like build a network and using the resources like Revision Path and using other people, word of mouth people and talking with people to kind of make these connections. And that's kind of one of the great things about living in New York too, is that you actually can just meet these people who are doing this really amazing work sometimes. And I'm going to be spending a little bit of time on the West Coast soon and I'm hoping to meet more people like Maurice Woods in person and some and Martine Sims in person. Like these people, I'm really trying to kind of connect with them because I think that what they're doing is really amazing. I would just love, those are people that I look up to. Those are people that I feel like I want to be my mentors, or at least from a distance, that very much inspire me. I'm very excited about actually connecting with them. And they're like other people, too, that I think obviously have had a huge impact. Just like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, though, the creative director you're talking about, so for people that are listening, is, uh, is Ashley Axios. She yes. was our, our 150th interview. Yeah, she just left the White House. She's now on the national board of directors for AIGA. So I, I, I won't say I work with her closely, but I'm sort of in in like the orbit, like the proximity, because I, I'm on the AIGA's diversity and inclusion task force. So, a lot of what she's doing and some of the stuff that I'm doing have there's some overlap there a little bit. And Maurice Woods, I mean, what he's doing with the Interact Project is great. I think I just saw the news recently that some of the work that he's doing through the project has started to make it into some schools out there. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, that's, and that's sort of what I was talking about, like being able to take this work and put it into the curriculum. So then students learn about it at an earlier age, instead of just kind of going and stumbling out into the industry and, and like, you know, trying to find what may or may not work for them. So if you, if you haven't heard his interview already, I definitely recommend checking it out. He's got I think I just did. a fantastic backstory. I think I listened to, I think I did listen to that or listen to a few, because he has a, a few interviews online, but I'll make sure I double listen to that one. Yeah, I, think I mean, he's so inspiring. Yeah, like he was a professional basketball player. Right. He played overseas for a long time. And then like his whole, it's a great interview. It's, it's a really great interview. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years? Like with everything that you're working on, I mean, I feel like you're not going to have any sort of a drought for work. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ideally, my goal is to open a design studio because I'm freelancing right now and kind of working in the sense that I am, this is a design studio. Like, I'm finding clients and doing the work. But I definitely want to have an established design studio 
And I'm working with my partner, Wael Marcos, right now. And we definitely think that we will be opening a design studio soon. And I mean, I would hope that Codify Art would be a huge nonprofit organization and we'll have a space and we'll be able to host more events and have more resources to provide to other QTPOC artists and women working in the arts field. And we've been trying to do more workshops and things like that. So I definitely want to be teaching more you know, in five years. And I love doing workshops. I love talking with high school students. I love last October, I went to Beirut um, with Wael to give a workshop to college seniors to help them finish and finalize their thesis projects and kind of function as a guest critic slash a teacher. And like those types of opportunities are really amazing. And so I definitely want to continue teaching more and like learning more from students. I think, you know, every time you do something like that, there's always going to be kind of a learning curve if it's not for like the culture or the language or, you know, even just the things that students were talking about were really inspiring and moving and things that we don't think about, you know, as American designers. And so like having, continuing to have opportunities like that is definitely a goal of mine. So yeah, I guess that's what my next five years will look like. Awesome. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and follow your work online? Totally. So everyone can visit my website at jonathangkey.com. And you can also look up Codify Art at codifyart.com, artisagainstpoliceviolence.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at junkie13 and Instagram at jkey13. All right. Sounds good. Well, John Key, man, there's a there's a lot to unpack here, but I really, really, really thank you for taking time out to just come on the show to talk about the work that you're doing. I think it's it's super important from both an artistic standpoint as well as from an identity standpoint. And then, of course, I just empathize with anybody that's coming from small town <laughs> Alabama that's killing it. Like I've had a few I had a few people on the show. There's you. There's D'Angela Duff. She's from Utah. There's Tiffany Middleton. I think she's from like right outside Auburn or something like that. So I got to show love to my folks from from small town Alabama because it it takes a lot to get out once you're there. So I I completely support exactly what you're doing. But yeah, man, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. This is amazing. This is so great. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jonathan Key and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jonathan and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. 
leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two, and it really, really helps the show by bumping us up in the iTunes rankings for design podcasts. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and consider becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.